Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hi, YouTube. It's Joshua Miles, and welcome back to my channel. Today's case is going to be yet another solved case sent in by one of you guys. If you want to submit a case for me to cover on my channel, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply channel then you can do so over at requestacase.com i've just launched a newsletter and text messaging list so if you want to get a text and an email when a video goes live or to receive other exclusive announcements then you can sign up for free at joshuamiles.co slash sign up but before we delve into this video though i'd just like to give a massive thank you to the people over at magellan tv for partnering up with me to bring you today's episode it's brand like Magellan TV that make episodes like this one possible and I implore you to go click the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and go give them some support for helping keep this channel afloat. I've spoken about Magellan TV countless times before on this channel and it is one of my favorite ways to wind down before bed in the evening by just putting on one of their documentaries um, they have so many in their massive collection, so I just put one on and go to sleep. They have lots to choose from in their collection. They have true crime, history, science, space and nature documentaries available to stream on demand on their service, which is perfect for when you want to expand your knowledge on a wide range of topics. Magellan TV was created by filmmakers and the producers alongside talented curators to ensure that the content available on their service is the most premium out there. I gave you a recommendation to go watch the last time I worked with Magellan TV, so if you watched my recommendation, let me know your thoughts by tweeting it to me or leaving a comment down below. But since then, I've actually stumbled upon yet another documentary called Death on the Matterhorn. Here's what the show is about. Seven men stand on the summit of the Matterhorn, the last alpine peak to be conquered. Their place in history is assured. Then disaster strikes. A rope snaps and four men fall to their death. But did the rope really just snap? Or did one of the climbers cut it? This is a murder mystery at 14,000 feet, filled with gripping reenactments filmed at the original locations to retell the tragic events. You can watch this documentary and so many more at 4K at no extra cost. Magellan TV have been kind enough to hook you up with a one-month free trial membership. If you use the link try.magellantv.com forward slash Joshua Miles. You can find this link at the top of my description and in my pinned comments. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Oh, 
Monday the 7th of August 1995 was a day that would rock the small village of Aroma Park, Illinois for decades to come. In a tale of heartbreak, devastation and serial homicide, let's discuss the case of Timothy Buss. On that afternoon of Monday the 7th of August 1995, at about 1pm, 10-year-old Christopher Mayer had begged his mother to let him go down to the Kankakee River to watch the Aroma Park boat launch with his friends. After a degree of persuasion, Christopher's mother agreed, but instructed the 10-year-old to make sure he would be back at home before 5pm, else there'll be trouble. Excited to see the boat launch, Christopher got on his bicycle and cycled off towards the Kankakee River. He was wearing blue shorts, a green patterned t-shirt, Chicago Blackhawks high top tennis shoes and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle underwear. Unbeknownst to Christopher's mother, him riding off into the distance on his bike would be the last time that she would see him alive. When 5pm came around, Christopher's mother began to ask herself where Christopher was. She was in the middle of cooking dinner and decided that he'd probably be home at any moment. It was a strict rule within Christopher's family home that you must be back on time. As Christopher's mother was putting their dinner into the oven, she saw the clock on the stove and a sudden feeling of fear came over her. It was now 5.22pm and Christopher was still not home. She knew at that moment that she had to go and find Christopher. Christopher's mother raced down to the Kankakee River boat ramp, where earlier in the day, the boat had launched. She spoke with a few of the kids that were still down there by the river, and they told her that Chris had actually left about an hour ago. Christopher's mother realized that she must have crossed paths with Christopher as she was going to the river, so decided to head back home as he must have gone back. However, when she arrived back home, 10-year-old Christopher was nowhere to be found, and Christopher's mother knew deep down that something was wrong. She went back to the boat ramp on the Kankakee River and began to frantically search for her missing 10-year-old son, calling his name out, though as the sun began to set, she realized that she needed help. At around 8pm on that August Monday, Christopher's mother phoned the police and reported her son as missing. The police rushed to Christopher's home to take the missing person's report, obtaining information about what he looked like and what he had been wearing when he went missing. The authorities launched a full-scale search for Christopher. Detectives began to speak with Christopher's mother to try to ascertain who exactly Chris was as a person. She told the detectives that Chris liked to fish, loved to ride his bike, and was just your average 10-year-old boy. He was well-behaved, polite, and respectful. Despite their best search efforts, no leads or any clues as to what happened to Christopher were found overnight going into Tuesday the 8th of August 1995. As Tuesday morning came around, the authorities intensified their search efforts, pulling in more resources to help locate the missing 10-year-old. Christopher Meyer was last seen fishing along the Kankakee River. Now a half dozen boats and over a hundred workers are searching the area. The search continues for missing boy Christopher Meyer. Police say he was last seen fishing along the river when he disappeared.
That Tuesday, the 8th of August, uncovered a series of key details in the search for Christopher. The authorities had been searching the section of the Kankakee River where Christopher had last been seen, and they had uncovered one of Chris's shoes floating near the boat ramp where the boat had launched the day before. The shoe was positively identified to be a Chicago Blackhawks high top tennis shoe, the same shoes that Chris had been wearing when he went missing. Later that same day, Christopher's mother received a phone call to her home landline from the police. They asked her to come as quickly as possible to the fire department, but didn't tell her anything more than that. She jumped into her car and drove as fast as possible to the fire department, holding on to that hope that possibly her Christopher had been found safe and well. When Christopher's mother arrived, though, they brought her to the rear of a cargo van. Inside the van was a bicycle. Christopher's mother positively identified the bike to be her 10-year-old son's. Search teams had located the bike earlier that day across the river from the boat launch in a wooded area east of the railroad trestle. The following day, on the 9th of August, investigators found Christopher's other shoe floating in the Kankakee River near the Kankakee Country Club. The search efforts for Christopher intensified, though they were unable to locate anything more connected to Chris. That was until Saturday the 12th of August 1995 six days after Christopher went missing. Search teams discovered pieces of Christopher's clothing around the gravel parking area for hunting area 10 in the Kankakee State Park. On this path leading from the parking area into the hunting area, searchers located a piece of Christopher's green patterned t-shirt. Further into the hunting area in a nearby bush, searchers discovered a pair of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle underwear the same underwear Christopher had been wearing when he disappeared. Throughout the search efforts, from the very beginning of the investigation, detectives were keen to speak with other children that had been at the boat launch the day Christopher went missing. What did they see? Who did they see? Where did Christopher go? Police actually uncovered, through a series of interviews with kids present that afternoon, several accounts of Christopher being with a mystery man. A 14-year-old boy had gone to the launch with his friends that afternoon to fish. As the pair were fishing next to the boat launch area, the 14-year-old boy had seen Christopher speaking with an unknown man. The unknown man was described as having a moustache, dark hair, and to have been wearing a turquoise tank top with blue jean cut-off shorts. The 14-year-old boy actually spoke with this unknown man who told the boy that he'd been raised in Aroma Park and had family in the area, but he had just returned from a long trip to Florida. The kids and the unknown man spoke about saltwater fishing in Florida and spoke about fishing on the Kankakee River. Interestingly, the 14-year-old boy had noticed that the man's tackle box had a fillet knife and lures inside that he knew were too big to use to fish in the Aroma Park area. Another boy, a 15-year-old, told the investigators that he had seen Christopher at around 4pm, quote, walk out of the woods on a path leading from the fishing area adjacent 
resistance to the boat launch. The 15-year-old then saw Christopher walk to a car where he spoke to someone before jogging back to the boat ramp to wash mud off his shoes in the river. Following that, Christopher grabbed his bike, which he had left leaning against a nearby tree. The 15-year-old boy actually spoke with Christopher and suggested that he wash his muddy bike in the river, but Chris refused and said that he had to be home by 4.30 p.m. It was 4.17pm when Christopher quickly rode away from the boat launch. Interestingly, a car had been seen circling in the car park before driving out of the parking area with Christopher riding closely behind it on his bike. The 15-year-old boy thought that Christopher was following the strange car. Another child at the boat launch identified the car to be a 1984 Oldsmobile Sierra. A couple at the launch had also seen Christopher walking with an unknown man, who they described to be in his late 30s or early 40s, walking out of the woods. They described that the man had been wearing a dark sleeveless shirt, that he had a moustache, dark hair, and that he had been smoking a cigarette when they saw him. The couple also saw a car in the parking area, but were unable to later identify the vehicle. Numerous other witnesses also saw an unknown man with Christopher that day, along with the 1984 Oldsmobile Sierra. On the 9th of August 1995, a man walked into the police station and told investigators that he had seen a car in the parking area of the Kankakee State Park on the 7th of August the day Christopher went missing. This man, who we'll call George, was driving past the parking area on the way to work and had noticed the vehicle parked facing the road. A man who George didn't recognize was standing at the rear of the car with the trunk open. George only saw a side view of the man as he drove past until the unknown man made eye contact with him and turned to face him. George describes the man as having dark wavy hair and wearing blue jeans with a gray t-shirt. He also described a fillet knife in a leather case in the back pocket of the man's trousers. George reported that he wasn't sure whether he had seen the man when he was driving home from work for lunch at around 12.30pm to 1pm or when he had driven home from work after finishing his shift between 4.30pm and 5.30pm. Another witness came forward who we'll call Meredith and told the authorities that at around 12.45am the night that Christopher went missing, she was driving to work on Route 113 when she, quote, saw an older model silver blue Spectrum turn in front of her from a dirt road just west of Hunting Area 7. Further to this, Meredith also saw the same car turn onto Route 113 at the same location the following evening at around 9.25pm on the 8th of August. Meredith was driving along the same route she always did and noticed the car as it didn't have its headlights on for about a mile and a half. She saw the driver behind the wheel and described him as having a moustache. At around 3am on the 15th of August 1995, eight days after Christopher had gone missing, Christopher's mother was awoken by a knock on her front door. She rushed down the stairs and opened the door to a police officer. The police officer sat Christopher's mother down and informed her that they had found Christopher's body. The 10-year-old's naked remains had been found in a clearing at the end of a path leading from the parking area of Hunting Area 7 
in a shallow grave underneath a sheet of plywood. An autopsy was conducted by Dr. Larry Blum, who is an expert in forensic pathology, and it was determined that his cause of death was multiple stab wounds. Christopher had sustained 52 stab wounds and cuts to the body, primarily to his chest, abdomen, and back. The weapon that had been used to inflict the wounds was determined to have been a single-edged knife that was long and narrow, potentially a fillet knife. The next discovery made in the autopsy was gruesome, and it would be disrespectful to discuss it in its intricacies. But to make a long story short, Christopher had been mutilated. A forensic entomologist, Neil Haskell, analysed the insects found in Christopher's remains to determine the time of death. Neil would later explain in court that certain insects are attracted to human remains, sometimes within mere seconds of death, to lay their eggs. The forensic entomologist was able to use the stage of development of the insects found to give a precise estimation of the time of death. It was concluded by Neil Haskell that Christopher had most likely died sometime before sunset on the 7th of August, the same day he went missing. Christopher's remains were positively identified through dental records. But who had done this to Christopher? Who was this unknown man and why? A tragic end to the search for a missing boy. Two Will County officers found Meyer's body at the end of this path near the Kankakee County border. Police are hoping to identify a suspect as witnesses say they saw him speaking to a man about 35 years old with dark hair and a mustache. Christopher's death wasn't the first time a young child had gone missing in Kankakee County before being found murdered. 14 years prior to Christopher's death, on Thursday the 21st of May 1981, Kankakee County would be shaken to its core. Tara Sue Huffman was born on Thursday the 14th of August 1975 in Kankakee County, Illinois. She had a fairly regular childhood and had a perfect attendance in kindergarten. At around 9.30am on the 21st of May 1981, five-year-old Tara and her classmates, along with a chaperone, rode a bus to a roller skating rink on a school trip. The children skated in the rink until around 11.30am when they stopped to have lunch. Tara was super excited about this school trip and she decided to eat a hot dog and drink a can of Pepsi for her lunch. Following their lunch, the school children boarded the bus and returned back to school, arriving back at around midday. About 15 minutes later, at a quarter past midday, Tara's mother and sister arrived at the school to pick her up. They didn't go straight back home though. They actually stopped at a few neighborhood garage sales before returning back home at around 1.30 p.m. After they had gotten home, five-year-old Tara got changed out of the clothes she had worn on the school trip and into a pair of shorts and a top. She'd been asked by her friends at school to come over to play that afternoon, and so she told her mother that she was going over to her friend's house the Smiths. Now, the Smith family only lived a stone's throw from Tara, so the five-year-old set off on her own barefooted down an alley in the direction of the Smith family home. 
At approximately 2.30 p.m., Tara's brother arrives at Tara's family home with a turtle that he wanted to give to Tara. Subsequently, Tara's mother phones up the Smith residence to ask for Tara to come back home. But when she called, the Smiths told them that she hadn't been at their house that day. Tara's mother was taken aback by this response, though she thought that perhaps Tara was just playing outside in the yard and that the Smiths just hadn't seen her, so she decided to go over and fetch her. When Tara's mother arrives at the Smith's house, the five-year-old was nowhere to be seen. Panic began to set in for Tara's family, who began to frantically search the homes of neighbors, but nobody had seen Tara. The family searched for around two hours before finally, at 5 p.m., they contacted the local police force. A massive search effort for Tara was launched, with the police joining the family and neighbouring families to try to find the five-year-old. Sadly, at 7.15pm, Tara's remains were found in the pit of a landfill, about two and a half blocks south of the Smith family home. Tara was found in the news, apart from her top, which had been pulled up to her armpits. Her face was bloodied, and she was found with a stick protruding from her rear end, for lack of a more sensitive term. It's important to note that the person that discovered Tara's body was a 13-year-old boy at the time, and had attempted to lift Tara's remains out of the pit when he found her. This 13-year-old boy was called Timothy Buss. Timothy had been searching the landfill for Tara, and there was another man there also searching the landfill, but they weren't searching together. After the discovery of Tara's body, Timothy had called out to his co-searcher to come help carry her, but he was told by the co-searcher to leave the body where it was. The co-searcher then told Timothy to ensure that no other kids see the remains before running off to fetch the police. When the police arrived on the scene and once the scene was secured, they took Timothy and his co-searcher into the police station to give statements about the discovery. Timothy's father joined them at the police station. At approximately 10pm that evening, Timothy was briefed on the usual procedures required following the discovery of human remains and was given his Miranda rights. Following that, Timothy began to describe what had happened that day. You see, Timothy hadn't gone to school that day as his class was going on a field trip which his family couldn't afford, so instead he had planned on going to Texas with his grandfather. He had been staying at his aunt's house and had crossed the street that morning to the garage next to the Smith family home to help a neighbor wash their car. After helping wash and wax the car, Timothy returned back to his aunt's house where he ate hamburgers for lunch. He then told the police that he watched television until about 2.30 p.m. when he decided to go over to his friend's house to hang out. Timothy returned back to his aunt's home at around 3pm and around 10 minutes after that, he was picked up by his grandmother to go back to his home in a local trailer park. After arriving, he played softball until about 6.30pm when his grandmother drove him back to his aunt's house. That was when Timothy crossed back over the streets and spoke to the Smith family, who informed him that Tara had gone missing. The Smiths realized that Tara enjoyed swimming, so they decided to drive down to the nearby creek along with Timothy to search for her. Perhaps she'd gone for a swim. They searched along the creek for a considerable time before Timothy walked past the pits in the landfill 
where he found Tara's remains. Timothy, realizing what he had come across, called out to a man that had been searching in the landfill, after which the police took over the scene. It's important to note that one of the officers that was taking Timothy's statement was actually a family friend of the friends that Timothy had claimed to have visited between 2.30pm and 3pm that day but that officer had been under the impression that the friend had gone to live in Florida with his father and that the friend was not still in town. The officers confirmed with Timothy that they were talking about the same boy and they asked him what they did when they hung out to which he replied by saying that they had just sat around and chatted. The investigators did take notice of hairline scratches on Timothy's face, along with a reddish-brown stain on the thigh of his trousers. Detectives then privately phoned up Timothy's friend's mother to see whether his friend was in fact at home and not in Florida. But as it turns out, his friend was actually in Florida with his father and had been for some time. Timothy reconfirms with the police that they were talking about the same boy before they asked him to remove his clothing so it could be processed. He was finally released from the police station just after 5am on the 22nd of May. Interestingly, while Timothy was being interviewed, a witness phoned into the police station to report an incident which they believe could be significant. The witness claims that at around 2.30pm on the day that Tara went missing, a boy knocked on her front door and asked whether he could borrow her children's wooden wagon that was situated in her front yard. She described the boy as wearing a white t-shirt, blue jeans, tennis shoes, and a baseball cap, the same clothes that Timothy had been wearing that day. He had been heavily sweating and had brought with him a fiber barrel. When the witness asked what was in the barrel, the boy had replied by saying that it was just full of junk from cleaning out his garage and that he wanted to use the children's wooden wagon to help move the barrel to the dump. The boy's behaviour while asking for the wooden wagon was of particular note. The witness described him as being very nervous, avoiding eye contact, and that he appeared to have thick lips. The nervous boy promised her that he'd return the wagon as soon as he's done and the witness gave her permission for him to use it. It wasn't until later that day that the witness noticed that the wooden wagon had reappeared in her front yard. She hadn't seen the boy return it. A police officer was sent to retrieve the wooden wagon and to bring the witness in to give a formal statement. As the witness was walking through the police station to give her statements, she saw Timothy Buss. She didn't mention it at the police station, but she told her husband after they had left that she recognized Timothy Buss as being the boy that had borrowed the wooden wagon. Further witnesses then began to come forward, claiming to have seen a boy matching Timothy's description at various different times on the day Tara was murdered. He had been seen at the Smith residence, standing on the porch of his aunt's house with a small child, carrying a barrel southwards down an alley and pulling a wagon north away from the landfill area. It was also discovered that Timothy's grandmother worked at a company that had used the same fibre barrels that Timothy had been seen with. Timothy's grandmother had even been given two of these barrels. It's important to note that a fibre barrel was actually found at the scene of Tara's body. 
After forensic analysis, it was determined that the barrel found at the scene of the crime contained traces of blood that were consistent with Tara's and a palm print that matched Timothy's on the lid. The barrel was also traced back to the company that Timothy's grandmother worked for. The reddish-brown stain on Timothy's trousers was analysed, and it was identified to be blood, which was also found to be consistent with Tara's blood. A further witness came forward with testimony that placed Timothy at the Smith family home shortly before Tara went missing. The witness had seen Timothy with a stick etching in the gravel, a stick which was of a size consistent with the stick found at the crime scene. In fact, a broken up portion of that suspected same stick was also found at the crime scene. An autopsy was conducted on Tara's remains which determined her time of death to be sometime between 1.30pm and 2.30pm. She had died as a result of a single blow to the head from either a blunt instrument or from the child's head being smashed against a hard surface. Tara's skull was fractured by the blow. Timothy Buss was sentenced on the 14th of December 1981 after a long trial. He was tried as an adult and was found guilty of Tara's murder, being sentenced to 25 years in prison. So how is Tara's case related to Christopher's? The composite sketch that the police had drawn up of the man that had been last seen with Christopher at the boat launch had been published in numerous local newspapers. And it just so happens that Tara's brother had picked up the newspaper and opened it. When Tara's brother saw the composite sketch, he knew immediately who it was. You see, Timothy Buss had very recognisable eyes. They were cold and they could stare right through you, right into your soul. And the composite sketch captured that well enough for Tara's brother to immediately recognise it as being an older Timothy Buss. But Timothy had been sentenced to 25 years in prison for the murder of Tara and it had only been 14 years since she had been killed, so Timothy couldn't possibly have done it. Or so Tara's brother thought. Tara's brother, regardless of that, decided to phone into the police station and report this. The detectives agreed that the composite sketch did indeed look like Timothy Buss and began to ask themselves, Timothy Buss hadn't been released, had he? One of the detectives phoned up the Department of Corrections to confirm whether or not he had been released. And it was then that they discovered that Timothy had, in fact, been released two years earlier in 1993. Timothy actually still had family in the Kankakee County area. The police decided to go pay Timothy a visit. He'd been at his father and stepmother's home that morning, and when the police showed up, he refused to speak with them without an attorney presence, so the police left. Later that afternoon, Timothy's father contacted the police and told them that Timothy was living with his brother. But when the police showed up to Timothy's brother's address that same afternoon, nobody was there. Timothy was also not at his workplace. The investigators decided to put Timothy's brother's home under surveillance and wait for Timothy to come home. At around 9pm, they saw Timothy's car pull up to the apartment complex and park, but only a handful of moments later, when the police looked again, Timothy's car had gone. 
The police attempted to track down Timothy's vehicle that evening, but were unable to find it. The following day, the police received a tip-off from a woman working at a local motel that a man who looked similar to the composite sketch had checked into the motel at about 10pm the night before. She told the investigators that the man had been driving a bluish-grey older model four-door Spectrum, which had fishing rods in the back window. The man had been smoking when he checked into the motel, and so had been given a smoking room on the lower floor. The police put the man in the motel under surveillance. He had checked out at around 8.25am in the morning and was seen by the surveillance team placing a pair of boots into the motel's dumpster. Investigators asked another guest at the motel to retrieve the boots from the motel dumpster and place them in a plastic bag for evidence. It's important to note that the boots were described as being water-soaked when they were handed over to law enforcement. The police followed the man, who they assumed to be Timothy, after he had dumped the boots as he drove away in his car. Timothy pulled into the parking area of the Wilmington Dam, got out his fishing gear and began to fish in the dam. The surveillance team called for additional police officers to be dispatched to the dam, and once these additional police officers had arrived, they approached Timothy. As soon as the police approached him, Timothy became very nervous and started to walk around in a circle, avoiding all eye contact with the officers. The detectives then asked Timothy to come with them to the police station, to which he agreed to do. He drove his own vehicle to the station, with the police following closely behind. After parking his car in the parking area of the police station and after he had gone inside, the police had a tow truck bring similar cars into the lot so that they could bring in witnesses to pick out the vehicle they had seen at the boat launch in a lineup. Following a consultation with his attorney, Timothy actually gave written consent for the investigators to search his car. The car underwent forensic examination after Timothy had given his consent. The evidence technician vacuumed the vehicle and placed any debris in a sealed bag to undergo further testing. They discovered a bucket and a hammer with mud caked on the claw on the floor of the back seat of the car, fishing poles in the back window, a tackle box in the trunk, but the tackle box had no fillet knife. They also uncovered blood on the carpet of the trunk, as well as on several other items in the trunk, such as a lug wrench, dent puller, and a bottle. Further to this car search, the police obtained a search warrant to search his motel room and his brother's home. However, despite their best efforts, no fillet knife could be found anywhere. A forensic microscopist called Ralph Mayer analyzed hairs recovered from Timothy's car and from the t-shirt fragment found in hunting area 10. Hair samples were also taken from Christopher's remains and from Timothy to be analyzed. Ralph determines that the characteristics of two hairs recovered from the front seat passenger area of Timothy's car match the characteristics of Christopher's hair, characteristics which were very unique due to its structure and pigmentation. Characteristics of the hair found on the t-shirt fragments were also compared to Christopher's and were found to be a match. A forensic scientist and expert in forensic microscopy, Kenneth Knight, analyzed soil samples taken from the claw of the hammer found in Timothy's car against samples of soil taken from the site of Christopher's shallow grave, and the soil samples were consistent with one another, meaning 
they matched. A further forensic scientist, Robert Hunton, who is an expert in footmark forensics, compared the partial footprint found at Christopher's gravesite to the boots that Timothy had attempted to discard in the motel dumpster, and found that the pattern and size of the right boots was the same as the partial footprint. Another forensic scientist, Gail Kynast, who is an expert in serology and blood analysis, analyzed items and evidence recovered by the investigators. She found that there was human blood on the dent puller found in the trunk of Timothy's car, human blood on the carpet of the trunk that had soaked through the carpet, and human blood found on a box which was discovered at Christopher's gravesite. Blood was also found on the boots that Timothy had tried to dispose of, but Gail was unable to determine whether the blood was human or not. A DNA research coordinator, William Frank, who is an expert in forensic DNA analysis, analysed DNA extracted from an inhaler that Christopher had been prescribed. He also analysed DNA taken from the carpet of Timothy's car, DNA taken from a piece of Christopher's right femur, and from the bloodstained box found at the gravesite. William Frank used two different methods of DNA analysis, PCR and RFLP. Each of those two methods are used to identify characteristics in a sample of DNA. From those characteristics, a DNA profile is built. Each technique identifies different characteristics, and so two different profiles are built from using both method and combined to make one more complete profile. The PCR method was used on the DNA samples taken from Christopher's inhaler, from the carpet in Timothy's vehicle, from Christopher's femur, and from the box found at the grave sites. It was determined that the DNA in all of these samples from those items were the same, and that the DNA profile could be found in one out of 19,000 Caucasian individuals. The RFLP method was used to compare the DNA in blood samples from Christopher's parents and samples taken from Timothy to the DNA uh, in blood found on the box and on the carpets. RFLP requires more DNA to be present to ascertain a result, and so the RFLP method was unable to be used on the inhaler or on the femur. It was subsequently determined that the blood on the box and the blood from the carpet in Timothy's car came from the child of Christopher's parents. It was calculated that the chance of two Caucasian parents producing a child with the same RFLP DNA profile was 1 out of 3.8 million. It was further calculated using the PCR and RFLP profiles that the frequency of the DNA being present in the Caucasian population was 1 out of 419 million times. 28-year-old Timothy Buss was subsequently charged with the murder of 10-year-old Christopher Meyer. Timothy Buss was indicted on six counts of first-degree murder, three counts of aggravated kidnapping, and one count of aggravated unlawful restraints. His trial took place in the circuit court of Will County in 1996, and he was found guilty on all charges by the jury. The jury further found no mitigating factors sufficient to preclude the imposition of the maximum penalty, the death penalty. Subsequently, Timothy Buss was sentenced to death for first-degree murder and was given a 30 years sentence imprisonment for aggravated kidnapping, as well as a further five-year imprisonment sentence for aggravated unlawful restraints. However, in 2003, the state of Illinois commuted all death sentences to life in prison. 
But this all leaves just one question. Why? Why had Timothy Buss murdered a five-year-old girl when he was just 13 years old? And then why did he murder a 10-year-old boy at the age of 28? What was his motive? It's something that the police are still speculating to this day. Whatever the case, Timothy Buss is evil to the core, and he deserves to remain in prison until the end of his sorry, pathetic life. And that's everything I have for you in this case. Let me know what you think about this case in the comment section down below. Make sure you jump over to Magellan TV and show them some love and support and get your true crime fix over there and get your one month free trial too. You can find a link in the description and at the top of the pinned comments. Be sure you're also subscribed to this channel and you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.